we're moving into a world that's going to be filled with a lot of hurt, honestly. And kids need to understand now how best to manage their money, how best to invest. Welcome to the Bite Your Tongue podcast. I'm Denise, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Ellen Broughton. We've been through many years of parenting together, and now we're ready to talk about the ins and outs of parenting adult children. Your diapering days are over. Now it's time to consider when to bite your tongue. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Bite Your Tongue one I'm most excited to talk about. Let's just call it finances and your adult kids. I'm Denise Gorn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ellen Broughton. Ellen's working in Prague, by the way, so we're still experimenting with our sound systems. We hope you'll be patient. Now let's get to it. All right, money. We're talking about money today. And most important, we're talking about our adult kids and money. Most people would rather talk about their sex life than talk about their money. That's why we want to talk about it. Are you interested in, as interested in this topic as I am, Ellen? Of course I am. Everybody's interested in money. And I, I mean, it might be more like 50-50 sex and money, but they're both up there, really, definitely up there. So I have to say, as a psychologist who works with kids transitioning into adulthood, I find that money is one of the biggest issues that parents struggle with uh, in terms of how to set limits with it. In terms of their own finances, I find a lot of parents go out of their way to give kids lots of stuff and it only hurts themselves and their retirement and, you know, their own future. So there's lots to consider when we think about money. And it is a super tough conversation to have, even in the best of families. I absolutely agree with you. I feel that in my own family. I never know what to say, what not to say, what to offer, what not to offer. But today we're welcoming Jeff Opdyke. I am, I can't even tell you how excited I am to have him here. When I was younger and living in New York, Jeff wrote a really popular column for the Wall Street Journal called Love and Money. It was the one column, honestly, and I'm not joking about this at all. I read that column every week. When he signed off on the column in March around 2011, he wrote this and I thought it was really interesting. I've always treasured writing this column. I love that it's forced me to look at personal issues that I otherwise could and once did ignore. I love the smart feedback from readers, whether nice or nasty, and it pains me to know that I'll disappoint all those readers who tell me how much this column is an, an important part of their Sunday routine. Well, that was me. It was my Sunday routine, and I just loved how he delved into personal financial matters that none of us wanted to talk about, and I'm sure he'll do that today. Now, Ellen, you met Jeff in Prague, so I want you to do sort of a formal or introduction of him, and then we'll go on. Well, gee, you know maybe more about Jeff than I do, and <laughs> I spent a lot of time with Jeff. So I, a few years ago, worked in Prague for seven months, and now I have a lifestyle where I am in Boston half of the time and Prague half of the time, so I still see Jeff a lot. And Jeff and I were expats. For any of you who have lived abroad for a short or long period of time, you know that being with other Americans or other people who speak the language are really valuable. And Jeff has been a very valuable friend to me. So let me give you a little bit of information before we let him speak. So he, Jeff was born and raised in 
southern Louisiana, and he makes a really mean gumbo, or was it jambalaya, Jeff, that you made? Uh, I I made gumbo for you, I think. It was gumbo. Okay. It broke the stove, but it was delicious. (laughs) Well, we won't get into that right now. Anyway, he's been traveling the world ever since he ended his column. And even before that, he traveled a lot. He's traveled to nearly 70 countries, currently works as a digital nomad, living and writing from Prague, where he serves as editor and columnist for the Savvy Retiree, writing about retirement lifestyle, travel, and finance. He regularly regularly contributes as well to International Living Magazine. And as you know, he spent 17 years covering personal finance and investing for the Wall Street Journal. And then as executive editor for the Sovereign Investor and Total Wealth Insider, Jeff traveled the world meeting with politicians, economists, institutional investors, taxi drivers, waitresses, hotel bellhops, and supermarket checkout clerks to better understand local economies and local consumers. And today, we want you, Jeff, to help us understand 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and maybe even teens and their parents and their money issues. So. I'm, I will just turn it right over to you, Jeff, and I won't say anything I mean, about the gumbo. You two know more about me than I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most I've learned about you since I've, I've known you for two years now. So I know a lot about you now. Thank wow. you, Denise. Um, I mean, you know, when I, started, when I first started writing the, uh, the Love of Money column, the very first uh, column I wrote back in, I don't know when it was, 2004, maybe, somewhere around there, I specifically noted that um, that trying to have conversations around money with family members uh, and coworkers and friends and whatnot actually was substantially easier, uh, substantially harder than having money about uh, conversations about sex. And I, I specifically noted that sex is so easy to talk about in America these days, but talk about money and your income and the problems you have with money and the problems you have with your spouse about money. Nobody wants to talk about that. And so that's what the column was all about. And I, I got to tell you, I learned a great deal over the, the, the 10 years or seven years or whatever it was that I was writing that column. It was every single Sunday. I had 11 million readers. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, people really, really gravitated to that column. It resonated with so many people. I was in the Tsukiji fish market in, in Tokyo on a random four o'clock in the morning kind of thing um, when I had jet lag. And I, I popped into a McDonald's that was open and there was a there was an American man sitting next to me and I was trying to help him with the, the Japanese menu. And we just got to talking and he asked me why I was there. And I said, oh, you know, I, I just came over to do some research. Uh, I, I, I'm a writer for The Wall Street Journal. And he goes, oh, where are you from? I'm from Louisiana. From across the room, from across McDonald's. <laughs> A woman stands up and goes, oh, my God, you're Jeff Oakdyke. <laughs> and she came running over <laughs> every Sunday in the Denver Post. I love what you do. You help me dealing with my family and my kids with money. I love it. It's like it was the craziest thing. It was a Kichi fish market, McDonald's at, you know, five, four or five, four or five o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, um, you know, these these issues with money and family really, really resonate with with people. Okay, so two things. One is I can bet anything that if that woman read the Denver Post, she knows Denise 100%. There's no question about that. No, but that was too many years ago, Ellen. I was probably in New York back then. But I want to ask a couple questions here. Adult children. I feel like sometimes money can be bait, particularly if you have it. And do parents use it for gaining love? And I read that the biggest challenge is sort of how to provide enough money or should you provide money as they, they reach adulthood. But also, 
They don't want to know that there's so much there that they don't have to do anything. And some kids think X amount of money is a whole lot. You could say you have $100,000 and they would buy, oh, my parents are rich. I don't have to work. I think some young adults don't even have a concept of what is money and what it takes to live. So I just wonder as a parent, what do you share with them? What, how do you start with all this? Well, you use the term is money, is money bait. And I would say money is more emotional Xanax for parents because in particularly my I'm Gen X um, and, and, you know, my, my ex-wife and I, um, when we were together, we both worked and, you know, I, I had a, a relatively high pressure career with the Wall Street Journal and she had a high pressure career as the, the chief operating officer of a hospital and we had a lot of work obligations and we were living the traditional American life. And we had the, the McMansion that was too big for a family of four. And we had the cars and, you know, we had a lake house and we did everything that, that families do in my generation, Gen X and um, kids become, they sort of get lost in the mix a little bit. And I don't mean it in an, in a negligent way. I just mean that, because you are so busy living your life and providing for, you know, the house and the insurance and the car and the food and going out to dinner and traveling and all the things you want to do, your kids get kind of wrapped up in that and, and sort of forgotten a little bit. And you, you realize that as a parent, you realize that I'm not giving my kids the amount of time I need to give my kids. I'm not giving the kids the amount of time I want to give my kids. I'm not spending as much time with them as I want to because I have to do this job. And when that's the case, we revert to money as the solution because money is the solution to everything we've been told. And it's so much easier to, quote, prove your love by buying your kids something or, you know, Hey, you know, we're going to go to we're going to go to Paris uh, in, in three weeks or we're going to take you to London or, you know, whatever we're going to do. Let's go to Disneyland. You use money as a way to salve your own nerves, you know, your own your, your own shortcomings as a parent. And once you train yourself to do that, it's really hard to get out of that, not only for yourself, but for your kids, because now your kids kind of expect and know how to play the game that I can just go to mom and dad with my sad puppy dog eyes and. I haven't felt love in a long time. And oh my God, just give me a hug, mom. And you know, all the, all the goofy things kids do to play off parents' sentiments. And it's really easy to, 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 to buy them stuff. I, I remember still being in, in a mall in New Jersey when we lived there. My son was probably, I don't know, six or seven years old. And he was into a, a card game at the time. This would have been 2003 or four or five. I don't remember what it was. Um, he was into a card game at that time called Yu-Gi-Oh, which was this Japanese trading card kind of thing. Um, and he always wanted to buy boxes of these things. And my wife would always say yes. And there was always these certain cards. There was this, this, uh, this little kiosk inside this mall that sold individual cards, not just boxes. And some of the cards were really expensive, rare. You know, they'd go for like $100. Here's a five or six-year-old who wants a $100 Yu-Gi-Oh card. And my wife would give in and buy it for him because she felt guilty. And she told me specifically she felt guilty. We had this conversation all the time. And I would say like, I can't believe you just spent $100 on a piece of cardboard for him. 
And she goes, well, it's not the cardboard. It's the fact that I'm doing something with him and I'm making him happy. I said, well, can't you just make him happy other ways? You know, do things we used to do as kids when you and I were young, you know? Well, no, because I'm never home and, and I, I want to do things with them. And, and this is a way to, you know, to be together. It's like, uh-huh, all right, I'm not going to argue with you about this. I mean, you know, you got to do things the way you want to do it. But that's that's how parents get themselves wrapped up in this money game and kids learn to play it. OK, so two things I want to say, one with my psychologist hat on, and that is that we don't really need to do this. Like we really and truly do not need to give our kids things. This is the first generation in history where parents actually think they have to please their kids and make them happy. And so busy parents are okay. I mean, kids can be well-loved even when their parents are busy. That's how kids have been raised since the beginning of history until like basically our generation. And I can't believe, Jeff, you're only a few years younger than I am. And you're, you call yourself Gen X. And we're, you're almost a boomer. But okay, I'm not, I'm going to let that go. The other thing I want to say is, are you telling me all of those, all of those Yu-Gi-Oh cards are not worth anything? Cause that's what I was depending on for my retirement. A lot of those things are worth a lot now. Okay. Then I'm going to have to go looking for them. I want to say just one thing to what Ellen said. I'm not sure we're the first generation. I'm definitely a boomer. I'm older than both of you, but um guilty of everything that Jeff has said. Um, I don't know if I was a stay-at-home mom for a lot of time and 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 worked part-time. So I had a lot of time with them. I still wanted them to have everything. And, you know, I remember standing in line at the holidays for the, what were those beanie babies? You know, the number one beanie baby. And it wasn't just me. It was 15 other, hundreds of mothers, I should say, in line trying to get the peace bear. What the heck were we thinking? Yeah, but Denise, I think the difference between God and this generation, I'm, I'm talking about us. I mean, I think right. is that every parent wanted to do that, but they didn't stand in line for Beanie Babies. They didn't spend $100 on a card. They would have, your father would have said, that's absolutely ridiculous. You're right. You're right. And you're so right. that's the difference. There has yeah. really been a shift yeah, in right. how we, you know, and that that's where Jeff comes in, in terms of, you know, consumerism and economics and all sorts of other issues that go beyond psychology. I will, I will, I will jump in on Denise's side on this to a certain degree because I saw this perspective. I see this from two perspectives. So I grew up with my grandparents. Um, my grandparents were. My grandfather was born in, in 1912. My grandmother in 1921, and my mom was born in 45, right after the war. So I saw. I saw the, the family financial dynamic from grandparents and their offspring and then my mom and me. And I got to say, and no disrespect to you two, but I think baby boomers are some of the most financially ignorant people on the planet. Um, okay, and I so think we're barely baby boomers. I think there's another word for me because I'm not a boomer, way too young to go to Woodstock <laughs> and too young to even babysit my siblings, if my parents went to Woodstock, but yet not quite. They're, they're still- I'm a boomer and I'm going to agree with them. So yeah, I'm younger than Denise. Let's just make a note of that. Keep going, <laughs> so, so what I saw, and I'm going to come back around to the financially ignorant part. What I saw was my grandmother wanted to give my mom every single thing my mom wanted in her life to the degree that my mom grew up thinking that she was a princess born in the wrong era. 
And I see a lot of that in the boomer generation. The boomers spend money like it's going out of style. They wanted to, they were the ones that wanted to keep up with the Joneses. And I don't think Gen X is like that at all. Gen X is a much different generation. But I saw this with my mom and my grand and my and my grandmother. And I remember my mom telling me when I was nine years old that and she had just spent a bunch of money doing something. And I asked her about it. And she goes, if God made money for say, if money was made for saving, God would have made everything free. And her perspective was whatever money you have, you just spend it to live the happiest, best life you can. And she died a few years ago, literally penniless, didn't have a penny to her name when she died. I see too much of that in a lot of the boomers that I that I dealt with when I was writing my column that I hear from today who don't have enough money saved because they've spent it all along the way on buying this house and then the, the second house and then the third house and this car and then the suburban. And I, I, I just don't think boomers are a financially literate group. And I know there's a lot of boomers who are going to get mad at me as saying that, but that's my perspective as a financial writing writer talking to them for 20 years. I do think that's the, that is, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on that point, but I don't think that it's, again, your mom being the exception, but not the exception, but there's parenting has only morphed into more than that, I think in terms of what you're saying, that where every parent thinks their child is a princess or a president in training or the future CEO. And so it's there's it's gotten worse, I think. And I don't know from a financial standpoint, from, from a psychological standpoint. Oh, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I, I what I'm getting at is that maybe it skips a generation. I don't know. I mean, my grandmother was very frugal with money, except when it came to my mom and she would give my mom anything my mom wanted up until the day my mom died. My grandmother outlived my mom. And, oh my gosh. And uh, my grandmother was literally working into her eighties to help pay for my mom's life. I'm totally the opposite. I mean, I'm much like my grandmother in that I am much more frugal. I'm not going to go off and do stupid things with my money like my mom did. But that said, I agree with what Ellen is talking about in that I I am weak when it comes to my son and my daughter. You know, when they want something, I, I kind of cave in, you know, not all the time, not on a lot of big things. Like, like Ellen and I were having this conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. My son is 25 years old and he is, he has his job, he has a job and he needs car insurance. And at 25, a big 25 year old male in South Louisiana, your car insurance is just shy of the gross national product of most Caribbean nations. He doesn't have enough money for it. And his mom calls me and she goes, I'm giving him all this money to pay for a third of it. He's going to come up with a third and you can come up with a third. And it's like, no. And, he, and, and, and not to, not to be morbid about this, but his, his grandfather just passed away on his, on his mom's side and left him several thousand dollars it's plenty enough for him to go pay for his car insurance. But my, my ex-wife is like, well, no, he shouldn't have to do that. It's like, wait a minute. When you and I were 25 years old and we needed to pay for car insurance, we didn't call our parents and say, oh, can you give me money? And if my, if my grandfather at the time had passed away and left me several thousand dollars just so my insurance is coming due, I'm celebrating the fact that he had enough life insurance that he could help me pay for my car insurance. I'm not going to go call somebody else up in my family and say, hey, I need money to pay for my car insurance because they're going to say, wait a minute, you just got a bunch of thousands of dollars from your grandfather's passing. Can't you pay for your own car insurance? I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so it's interesting. I think there's so many different life stories here and all three of us are kind of in different, 
I don't want to say complete generations, but even separated by a few years. So there's all these different scenarios, you know what I mean, that, that each of us are faced with. But I think that's true for almost every kid. But I think the real question here is, and, and I think you brought it up so perfectly, Jeff, I know so many parents paying for cell phone plans, car insurance, a new car, part of their rent when they get started. And I'm trying to say to my kids, listen, you have to learn at some point what it takes to live. You know, what are all these small expenses that you forget about? So how do parents control this? And what do we do when so many people around us are paying for the kids car insurance, paying for half of their rent, paying for their deductibles? What are the steps for us to get them to live completely financially independent? Nancy Reagan said it best. Say no. I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I had this conversation with my grandmother many, many, many times because she would she would be crying because my mom was financially abusing her and my grandmother knew it. But my grandmother could not say no to her daughter for anything. I mean, anything my mom wanted, my grandmother gave her. I don't care what it was. I had to have these conversations with my grandmother. Time. You have to say no. You have to say no. You have to let her like stand on her own two feet at some point. If she falls on her butt, that's her fault and she'll learn from it. You can't continue to pay for her life. And my grandmother would cry and she would say, I understand what you're saying is true, but she's my daughter. I can't say no. There's no other, there's no other simple answer. I mean, it is as simple as learning to say no. Take a stand for yourself. Take a stand for your future. Take a stand for your own retirement. Take a stand for your own wallet and say no. If you can't afford to give your child something, if you think they should deserve, they think they should earn it for themselves, then make that stand and say no. And I think, Jeff, you're talking about a wide range of saying no. And what Denise was saying with cell phone or insurance, I think, and, and guilty, my 32-year-old daughter is still on my phone plan. I'm hoping when she gets married, she has her own family plan because family does imply new family. However, um, that is something I could say no to. Seriously, that's a conversation that you can just bring up and just say, listen, I'm, this is a little ridiculous. What's, you know, what's the solution here? But what you're talking about is the other end of the spectrum that people do struggle with, which is being taken advantage of their of their children. And it happens in lots of families where the son doesn't have a job anymore and they step in and and that, you know, those sorts of issues can be helped with getting therapy, getting a financial plan or getting more support. And I sort of imagine your grandmother didn't have a lot of that support. Like it's really hard when you're faced with a child who either is truly struggling or has mental health issues or drug issues or any any number of things that you might need to seek out extra support for that. Uh, you're right. My grandmother didn't have that kind of support and, and she didn't have the money to, to afford that kind of support. But the, the demands that my mom was putting on her were everything from $1,800 mattresses all the way down to, I want $100 to go to Whole Foods. So it was, it was the entire range of my grandmother needed to say no to the small stuff and my grandmother needed to say no to the big stuff. And she never could. And I think there are a lot of parents and I, I, I guarantee I am one of them at, the, at, at times with my own my own kids that just can't say no to certain things. Well, but I think that's a it's a continuum here. Your your grandmother and your mother's relationship sounds very extreme, and I think that goes on a lot. And I know situations that parents were bankrupt because they took second mortgages out on their homes to support their adult child who wasn't flourishing and all that sort of thing. 
But I think, you know, to treat your adult child to a dress when you're out shopping or something, if you're able, is not the worst thing in the world. But I guess... And so I think there's a real sort of, you know, continuum here on from one or extremes from one to the other. But anyway, what I really want to know is as they get into their 30s, you know, late 20s, they're working, they're doing okay. You know, you're not supporting them, but they haven't had a lot of financial education. So we have not been good at providing them, help them on that route. Or do I encourage them to get a financial planner? How do they find a financial planner? Um You know, I think even when you have a kid that's on their own two feet, they have had no experience or no teachings on really how to plan their life uh, financially. You know, I actually dealt with this um, in a column years ago. I can't remember when. Um, But in this particular case, you're talking about, you know, go buy somebody a dress. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I totally agree with that. By the same token, I would use that money and go find a, a, a financial planner that only works by the hour and isn't trying to sell product and buy an hour's worth of time and give it to your child and say, you know what? I probably didn't do the best job of teaching you about finance in life, but I, I found a pro who I really want you to go to and spend an hour with. You don't ever have to go back if you don't want to, but just go spend an hour with him or her and learn about what you need to be doing in terms of preparing for your own future, because I may have come up short in telling you what you need to do. I think that's a great way to get kids to to sort of engage with this on their own schedule, their own time. You know, let them go whenever they want um, and, and give it to them as just a gift. And, and, you know, let them learn from somebody who is not a parent who they're going to look at as saying, oh, mom is trying to, you know, hit me over the head with this financial and let somebody else tell them the truth, an independent third party who's not engaged, who's not invested in their future. That sounds like such great advice. You know, do you have any suggestion on how they go about then selecting this person? Yeah, I mean, you can you can go to Google and you can find the fee um, fee for uh, the fee only financial planners. There's a whole organization of these people, and I would just begin to doing a little bit of research that way. Maybe call two or three of them. And talk to them yourself before you even hire them and tell them what you're trying to accomplish. Gauge your own gut reaction. Is this somebody I would use personally? Or again, talk to talk to people in your own life who you know have used financial planners. Maybe talk to lawyers who you know have talked to, who, who have gone to planners or who even may, may even know planners. Just don't use, um, don't, don't hire people like at banks and places like that because all they want to do is sell you product. You really want a fee only financial planner who's not going to care what products you use or how you structure your financial life. They're just there to give you advice on what's best for you. Yeah, I did that myself with my CPA, the person who's been doing my taxes forever. And I just said, you know, I, I got money from my work that I could use with for financial planning for a year. It was like something just a benefit from work. And I used that with him and it was such great. I don't remember how much it was, but a thousand dollars worth of time of his. And because it was a time limited issue. He wasn't expecting me to invest with him or do anything. It it was a great experience. So another question is, does it matter if they're in there? Like I have a kid in LA and a kid in New York. Does it matter if the planner is in their city or or could it be anywhere? Because I do have a lot of friends with recommendations in Colorado, but I wonder, should my daughter have someone in LA and should my son have someone in New York? I mean, I guess that, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it matters, but personally I would 
want to sit down with that person. I don't want to do things on the phone. And I say that as a reporter who spent his life on the phone with people or interviewing people in person. And I can tell you when you're on the phone, you're always distracted. You're always ready to get off the phone. The person on the other line is ready to get off the phone because they're distracted. They've got other things to do. And when you sit down with them in front of them, it's a totally different engagement. Um, and people open up. You know, when I'm on the phone interviewing people, they just want to get off. When I sit in front of them, they tell me their life. <laughs> they just completely open up. So I would much rather go to a planner I can sit with because I think they're going to be more engaged in me and wanting to talk to me and wanting to, to, to show me how smart they are about things. Interesting. And when do you think parents of adult children should let their kids know about their finances? be it a lot or a little, you know, that maybe they're going to have to depend on their kids later on, or maybe not. Or when do you have that talk? What, what do they need to know? Well, my grandmother sat me down one day and she was probably 80 years old. She died at 94. So this was 14 years before she died. And she said, I want you to come over and I want an hour. I said, what do you need? Just come over and spend an hour. It's like, all right. So I went over and she's on the, at the kitchen table. She was waiting for me and she had a little brown manila folder and it had every single document in her life that she thought was important. 40% of them were not important, but you know, that's fine. Who cares? Um, but she laid out everything. Here's where the insurance is. Here's the burial policy. Here's the flowers I want. Here is you know, the title to the car, here's where I keep the spare key, everything. She just laid out everything. And honestly, I mean, again, it was 14 years too early, but it did make life easier for me when she did finally pass because I had all this stuff and I knew where everything was and I knew all the account numbers and I knew her old employee number at Allied Chemical when she was there, you know, in the 1970s and had that was now part of BASF. So I had all this stuff and I think it's really important for parents to put that kind of information together so that they can present it to their children one day, not when you're 60 or 65, but maybe when you feel like time is getting closer, uh, maybe there's some kind of terminal illness thing or, or not, who knows, whatever the reason is. But at some point, even in your 60s, you should alert your children to the idea that, hey, there are financial issues I want you to know about. I know my death is not something that you want to talk about, but at some point you do realize that mom is not going to be here anymore. And there are financial issues that we need to talk about. I don't want to hit you with those things right now because I know it's like out of the blue, but I want you to pick a time at some point in the next year. And I want you to call me and say, Hey mom, let's have that talk. Get yourself in the mode, in the mode, you, the child, of accepting the fact that a parent is going to die at some point and that a parent has these, these needs to tell you what they want, to tell you where things are so that they're trying to make life easier for you. You know, you have a need, you're going to have a, a need to know this stuff at some point. They have a need to want to tell you about it now. So you, the parent, say, hey, let's get together at some point in the future when you feel comfortable and let's go through this stuff. And I'm not going to lay out everything for you in morbid detail, but I just want you to know where things are. And then at some point later in life, you know, 10 years pass by, whatever, 15 years, and everything's, you know, you're still alive and whatnot. Then you might have a bigger conversation that says, okay, here's everything. Here's what I want you to do if I'm incapacitated. Here's where the money is to support that kind of stuff. Whatever the details are, that's when you go through those real hardcore details. 
Okay, so just to step, that was great, Jeff. Just to step it back for a minute, because I want to make sure we get to this, because I think people are curious about this. A lot of parents spend money on their kids' down payments, their kids' weddings, college, all sorts of big ticket items. Are there any kind of hard and fast rules? We're not really talking, you know, people who are very wealthy, go for it, like do what you can for your child, whatever, spend the money. You know, I, I have friends who have a lot of money and they're like, I'd rather just spend it while my kids are here. That's fine. But we're talking to people who actually might have 20 years of being retired and maybe have three years where they are incapacitated. What are the hard and fast rules for people to remember in terms of what to give their kids and what to keep for themselves? Um, and, and kind of not even look at it from a psychological standpoint, but from a financial standpoint. I don't think there are any hard and fast rules. I think that you give to the degree that you feel comfortable. But that's the problem is most people don't know what that number is. There is no number. There is a feeling. There is a sense. Like with my child, if, if, if my son, Zachary, called me and said, hey, dad, he and I are both into crypto trading and all that stuff. And he call, if he called me and said, hey, dad, I really need you to send me $300 to my account in Bitcoin because I want to do X. I would have no problem with that. It's not a financial pain for me. But when he calls and says, I want $2,500 to pay for car insurance, that rings a different bell in my world. And I'm going to say no to something like that because it, 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 is, a, it is an intolerance issue. I've reached, I've reached the point of pain. Not that $2,500 would kill me. It's the $2,500 plus the idea that he's 25 years old and should be able to manage his own finances at this stage. That hits me. So if I'm 65 years old and my daughter calls up and says, hey, you know, can you put me on your cell phone plan for the next year because X, Y, and Z happened in my life? Absolutely. Wouldn't bother me one bit. Can you help me pay my car insurance at that point? Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't bother me. Hey, I really want to go on a cruise with my, my, uh, my, my boyfriend or my husband. I want to take, them, take the kids with me or whatever. That's going to hit me a different way. So you just have to, you just have to know how it hits you, what feels okay and what feels not right. And when it feels not right, that's when you have to say no. I think you're overestimating most people's capacity to do that. I mean, it, because true. we're also talking about like big ticket items, like a wedding. Like let's say somebody has, I don't know, pick a number, like what percentage of their retirement should they spend on a wedding or or Again, on their child's college education or there is there is no number for that kind of stuff because if I have if I look at my account and I have let's I'm just gonna pick a random number. If I have two hundred thousand dollars in my retirement account and I am sixty-two years old, and my daughter comes to me and she says, Dad, I want a destination wedding with you and all of the family and Bob and all of his family want to show up and we want to do it in Punta del Este, Uruguay in the height of summer. And it's going to cost us $43,000. I'm going to say you can go jump off the nearest bridge because it, that's a financial pain. $43,000 of my 200,000. That's a huge number. Now, if she comes to me and says, Dad, we want to have a wedding. I know you, know, you, got, you, you can't afford a bunch of money, but could you, could you give us $2,500 to afford X? Absolutely. That's fine. I'll do that. So it's not that there is a hard and fast rule to anything. It is a pain threshold relative to how much money I have 
in my world to play with. If I think it's going to substantially degrade my lifestyle going forward and put me at risk when I'm 70 or 90 or whatever age I reach, I'm going to say no. And then you have to say, and I know that I know what you, I know what you're saying about people don't have the capacity to do that, but you have to find that capacity. Otherwise you're going to be in a situation when you were 85, 90 years old where you don't have the money and you're, you're worried about living off cat food. And then you're going to call your child and your child's going to be in a financial situation where they can't give you the money. Well, I think that goes back to almost our very first conversation that parents feel, I can't remember what you said at the beginning, but sort of not obligated, but, and and a bait was the word I used, but you want to say yes to the, a lot, buying love. You want to say yes to the wedding because they'll love you more. You know, I'll give up my retirement money because I just want you to be happy because if you're happy, you're going to love me more and I'm going to be a better parent. I also think parents just do it just because they just send their kids to a private college just because not because they think their child will love them more, but just because that's what everybody does. And so I know I see so many families in debt and and devastated when their child drops out in their first year of college or or don't they they don't complete college and then they're in you know three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that's coming out of their retirement account that is four hundred thousand dollars after a lifetime's worth of work. So so I think part of it is loving, but part of it is that's just kind of how we are socialized. And you're right, you have to find the capacity to sort of think of yourself. And even I, I have lots of conversations with friends who are going to spend a lot of money on their child's education for a child who's really not that interested in doing anything. You know, I'll say you can borrow your your child can borrow money for school or they can go to an in-state school, but you can't borrow for your retirement. But people don't tend to think that way. And maybe it's back to that boomer generation that me, you know, it's sort of like that me generation, which we've got sort of both narcissism for ourselves, but also for our kids. Like it's all about me, me, it's all about you, you. And so we in this symbiotic relationship where we just want to self, you know, satisfy our most extreme desires in some ways. Yeah, um, I do think there is a lot of the the keeping up with the Joneses. I think that is much more an American issue because we have become such an aspirational culture over the last 30 years, maybe. Um, and people want to people want to prove that they're living the American dream, even though the American dream is slowly getting destroyed by the reduction of the middle class or the, the, the hollowing out of the middle class. But people just want to live that that American middle class dream lifestyle that was so prevalent in the 1950s and 60s and that began to die in the 70s. And I would argue went away completely in the 1990s. Um, So, yeah, that's you know, that's a big, big issue. I think parents have today is trying to live a dream that no longer exists. And that's making kids more anxious and depressed than ever in history. So that's the outcome of this is kids are much, much, much less happy than they've ever been. Although I think some kids in our, my kids' generation are choosing simpler lives. You know, they saw this whole cycle and they're choosing simpler lives. But I want to ask one, a couple other questions. Um, One is that if you have one kid doing very, very well and one kid struggling, how do you deal with, you know, helping one and not helping the other? And how do you deal with that in your will? Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I had that question a lot when I was writing the column. Um, 
And parents always want to gravitate towards helping the child who doesn't have much and who is failing. And it makes perfect sense why you would. It's like John is doing great, but Greg is doing horrible. I've got to help Greg because I know John is okay. The problem here, and this is this is this gets into Ellen's world. The problem is there is that Greg or Jonathan begins to feel a little pissed, honestly, because the parents are doing everything for Greg. And why can't Greg get off his butt and do it for himself? You know, because now Greg is eating into my inheritance from mom and dad. And you get into a lot of sibling hatreds there, honestly. I mean, that's that's a that's Ellen's world, but I can tell you from the financial <laughs> side that that you create a lot of animosity between siblings when you begin to favor one over the other, even when one of them is struggling. Go ahead, Ellen. Well, I was just going to say, there's even this assumption that you're leaving your kids an inheritance, which I'm even unclear about whether that's something we should do. Like, seriously, why should I be like working two jobs in order for my kids to have an inheritance? Or why should we work till we're 75? Or, you know, like most people I know work till they're 70. And in my world, at least, because part of that is they, you know, they want to make sure that they don't impose on their kids. So should we leave an inheritance for our kids? Well, that's, you know, it's a really good question. And I do think about that in my own life. Um, I am not structuring my life so that I can leave a an inheritance to my children. That said, I own a lot of um, unique assets, Um, everything from rare coins to collectible sports cards I had when I was a kid that are like high grade kind of stuff. The assets I buy are are hard assets, they're collectible assets that I am either going to sell if I ever need to when I when I retire and I don't think I will need to do that or I'm going to leave them to my kids, which is exactly why I really bought them. I'm not I'm not aiming my life at at not spending enough in retirement just so I can leave money to my kids. I am structuring my life so that I have money to live my life when I'm retired. And if there's money left over, hey, great, whatever my kids benefit. But they're going to get a huge windfall of all these assets that are going to be worth a whole lot at some point. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm buying high quality stuff that, that appreciates in value. And I think they're going to appreciate that because now they have something that is much more like an heirloom kind of thing, sort of, as opposed to just a check from an insurance company. Um, and if they want to sell it, hey, great, they'll make a bunch of money off of it. And that's fine. And if they don't, then they still have something that they could pass on to one day to their kids. Um, so that's how I view inheritance. I come at it from that perspective. I also come at it from the perspective of when I get um, like a, a, a large payday on some particular thing, like I wrote a screenplay, as you know. Um, I don't know. I want to hear about that after this. <laughs> Ellen knows about it, as I was mentioning. Um, but like when you get paydays for things like that, I stick money into um, into an annuity for my kids that they're not going to be able to touch until they're like 67 or whatever their retirement age is going to be 70 at that point. Who knows? Um, so I'm giving them a different kind of inheritance. I'm giving them their own retirement to a certain degree by taking some of my money today that I don't really need and sticking into an annuity that's going to grow for the next X decades and that they're going to tap into one day and they're going to go, Wow, dad was brilliant. <laughs> Do they know about this annuity? No, they don't. I'm not telling okay, them. Okay, <laughs> I hope they don't listen. Um, I want to go back to one thing. I have two things I need to go back to. One is that about supporting Greg or John, okay? I think there's two situations in this. Greg could have some real 
health issues. I think when a kid's working hard and something goes wrong in their life, um, John and the parents want to help. When Greg is just a complete, you know what I mean, mess up and isn't working and is lazy and is failed at everything and not working hard, that's a different situation. So I think we have to look at it that way. The other thing is I've always thought when they're helping Greg and not John, John's almost being punished for being successful Yes, and working hard. It's a facts and circumstances issue. You're right. If there is an illness, John is clearly going to recognize that mom and dad are trying to help my brother live, try to get my brother healthy, whatever. That's a different, well, I'm going to go back and have a caveat there. That's far different than than John going off to college and studying to be a doctor or an astrophysicist or whatever he's going to be. And he's made a successful career. And Greg decided to skip out of college because he wanted to be a professional surfer, but not really. He just wanted to live in California on the beach and get high every day and go surf every once in a while and never really put any effort into it. And now he's 37 years old and he has no job. And, you know, working behind the cash register at a a small surf shop on the beach in San Clemente is not really covering his life and mom and dad are helping him. That's a different world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a facts and circumstances issue. Okay. Ellen's looking at her clock. We've got, I could talk to you for the rest of the, my day. Um, but I think we're going to wrap it up now. Um, and maybe we'll come back, Jeff. You're in what Ellen? You're just going to have to come to Prague. And I'm going to have to come to Prague and we're going to have to do it, uh, from Prague. That's right. This was just such a great episode. You know, you can look for a lot of Jeff's work. If you Google his name, as well as you have, have actually I need to ask one more question before we end I'm so sorry you wrote so many different books you know the Wall Street Journal's complete guide to personal uh finance preparing your kids for financial life what do you give me three key things that you think kids need to know that we haven't provided them um maybe you covered that in piggyback it was called piggy banking preparing your financial life for kids and your kids for financial life what do you need to let your kids know? For those of us that missed the boat and didn't do it, how about those that still have a chance? So if you if you have younger kids, the, the thing that I would do is teach them about saving. Show them that money is tied to work. Don't give them an allowance just because you can afford to give them an allowance. Make them work at some challenge, at some chore for that. It doesn't have to be anything hard but something that shows them that money is tied to effort, that it's not just mom and dad have a piece of plastic. And every time we go to the restaurant, he pulls the plastic out and pays for it because that's just a video game. They don't care about that. It doesn't mean anything. There's no, there's no effort in that, in that they, you didn't see any effort to earn the money that went on that credit card that allowed them to pay for dinner. So make sure your kids understand that there is effort tied to the, the earning of money. I would teach them as much as you can about saving and as much as you can about investing. And you may not know anything about that, and that's fine. Go find a book that teaches that kind of stuff. Go find a financial advisor who is an expert in talking to children. Those guys are out there um, because we're moving into a world where kids, tomorrow's adults need as much financial education as they could possibly have, because the economy we're moving into in America is not going to be a very good economy, despite what's going on right now. And you've got, you know, job growth, all that kind of stuff that's happening. We're moving into a world that's going to be filled with a lot of hurt, honestly. And kids need to understand now 
how best to manage their money, how best to invest. And it doesn't have to be anything complicated. I mean, investing can be as something as simple as we go to McDonald's all the time and I know you love the double cheeseburger. Let's go buy you some shares of McDonald's and show them what that process is like, you know. We always go to Home Depot with dad. Let's go buy one share of Home Depot. And let me show you what that's all about and how this thing grows and why it grows and how we make more money at it. Better yet, find a company they really like that's really cool, you know, like Apple computer or something like that. Buy them a share and let them get a dividend payment every quarter. Let them see that money coming in the in the check. Don't let it go to your brokerage account. Own the share directly so that the dividend check comes into your mailbox so that that kid can see I get money every three months. Wow, that's cool. Those are the kind of lessons that you need to teach young kids because now it's going to begin to resonate with them as they get older. And I'm seeing that with my own son. He knew that I worked in in personal finance and I was always investing and things like that. He never cared about it. He's 25 now and he calls me all the time with stock market tips and dad, what do you think about this company? And dad, how does this crypto thing work in terms of the, the processes they want to do that are going to change this industry and that industry? They get interested in that kind of stuff when they realize that it's going to help them live their life better, that there's more money out there that they can earn passively from investing than they're going to earn working their butt off every day. Gosh, so much great advice. I can't even tell you what a pleasure it's been chatting with you today, Jeff. We really enjoyed it. And I feel like I got to talk to this writer I admired and followed most of my young adult life. So thank you again. For our listeners, if there are questions we didn't get to today that you still have, let us know on our social media platforms. We can always ask Jeff back for episode two, Money and Your Adult Children, something we all need to keep talking about. In any event, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. Let us know what you thought of today's episode and also any topics you want to hear covered in the future. You can also share any advice you might have on parenting adult children. We really want to keep the conversation going, and we want to hear from you. In about two weeks, we will drop our next episode celebrating Mother's Day. We're going to talk to a couple of amazing moms of adult kids. Don't miss it. And then remember, the wedding episode is coming right after that. So if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, make sure to subscribe and give us five stars. And finally, a quick shout out to our behind-the-scenes engineers. Thanks so much to Mike DiOrio, our software engineer and teacher extraordinaire. Thanks also to Connie Fisher, who's our ongoing software engineer. These behind-the-scenes people make the magic happen. Thank you all so much. And until next time, remember, sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.